We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Holy Triune God, even as we, we celebrate what you are doing in this undeserving church, Lord, you are growing our church in numbers and in maturity so that this little light in North Kansas City is burning by your grace a bit brighter and farther. So even as we celebrate in what you are doing, we're also burdened this morning. Father God, you have called us to the life of being sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, and that tension is palpable this morning. For even as we rejoice in one area, we grieve many losses that have happened in these past couple of weeks. We grieve particularly the loss experienced by our dear brother and sister Morgan and Brianna Rainey. Lord, the gravity of this blow can hardly be exaggerated. It's not an abstract loss, Father. They miss their daughter. They miss Dora. And this is truly a bitter providence. And so we cry, how long, O Lord? Come, Lord Jesus, come and make all things new. Wipe the tears from every eye. Bind up the brokenhearted. Lord, bless Morgan and Brianna and Luke and Joe with your comforting presence Bless them with your comforting presence in a way that cannot be calculated or comprehended. Let them know that you love them. And as a congregation, we pray that you would bind our hearts with the rainies. Father, we do not want to be afraid of the dark grief. We want to link arms with them and lament. And so we do, Lord. We lament death. We lament the absence and the loss. Your word tells us that when we do not know what to pray for as we ought, your spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And so, Holy Spirit, please intercede for us now with deep groanings, for we are at a loss for words. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, in light of what we just prayed for, I struggled in the preparation of this text this week, perhaps more than just about any other. Because in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 4, 6, where we're at this morning, the Apostle Paul makes a bold and really counterintuitive claim. In this divinely inspired Inerrant, God-breathed passage of Scripture, Paul tells us how people change. He tells us how they're transformed. He tells us how sinners are transformed into saints and how those saints are progressively transformed into more and more Christ-likeness. And all of this transformation, Paul tells us, comes from one single activity, the same activity. And it's not from a foolproof discipleship program or pep talks or one-on-one accountability times or persuasive speeches or community groups or counseling even. This is not to say that any of these things are bad. In fact, 
Some of them are commanded in Scripture, and many of them can be helpful, but none of them have the intrinsic ability to transform people. And all of them are useless if they don't have this single activity included in them. The kind of transformation that Paul is after happens from one activity, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is how transformation happens. We stare at Jesus. In other words, nothing we bring to the table will ever be as effective in bringing about true and lasting transformation as a spiritual eyeful of Jesus' great glory. So as we do all of those other things, we must be doing this also, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And I must tell you, if ever there was a week for me to doubt the sufficiency of such a simple end goal in a sermon, it was this week, right? Every personal impulse within me was screaming out, scrap this sermon and go with another, right? Go to next week's passage. We, we need next week's passage a lot as a church, so we can just preach it twice in a row. I'll preach it this week, and then Ronnie can preach it next week, right? Because or at least just try to squeeze in and shove in a bunch of personal and pastoral comforting application points because people are hurting this week. Your people have been ravaged by loss and grief this week. Surely they need more than just a beckon to behold the glory of Jesus. Surely they need more than just that. That that was my thought this week. But brothers and sisters, Just that is what this passage is calling us to today. So we're going to take it on faith this morning. We're going to take it on faith together, you and me, that whatever else we may think we need, our greatest need this morning is to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this morning, specifically, Paul gives us four characteristics of the glory of Christ in this passage It is unfading. The glory of Christ is, number two, veiled by Satan. It is, number three, seen when the Spirit unveils the heart. And number four, it is divinely creative. So we're going to unpack each of those as we go. Look at verse 12 with me of chapter three. The glory of Christ is unfading. Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So Paul is still comparing his ministry with the ministry of Moses. He started doing this with last week's passage. And he says, he argues here, that his glory, the glory of his ministry, is better than the glory of Moses's because the glory of his ministry does not fade. And Paul is saying, Moses knew that his ministry had a fading glory. Moses knew this. And it was one of the reasons that Moses actually veiled his face, right? He was protecting the people from being disillusioned by the fact that the glory on his face and the glory of his covenant was fading, right? He says, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So he was protecting them from this disillusioning realization that the glory on Moses' face was not permanent. No such precaution was necessary for Paul. 
Right? He's saying this glory needs no veil to keep up the impression that it is unfading because it is unfading. See for yourself. Right? He's, not, he's not scared. He doesn't need to veil this message because the glory of his message was in no danger of fading. And yet this poses a problem for us. Right? If this is the case, then the superiority of Christ's glory should be apparent to everyone. It should be obvious, and yet unbelief still persists. Why? Right? What could possibly account for the fact that some people still ignore this glory that is so clearly, objectively superior? No doubt you've experienced this frustrating dilemma with folks in your own lives. Right? You, you see your friends and family members throw themselves at idols objects of inferior glory and loveliness and worship of them, and you think to yourself, Christ is so much better. Christ is so much better. Why can't they see that what their soul is thirsty for is Jesus? It's so incredibly obvious. Well, Paul actually gives an account for why it's not obvious to them. Point number two, the glory of Christ is veiled by Satan. Look at verse 14 with me. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now skip down to chapter four, verse two. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul is now shifting this veil metaphor, right? No longer is the veil draped over Moses' face in this metaphor. Now it's the veil is draped over the hearts of all of those who are perishing. So now the veil is draped over unbelievers. The metaphor has shifted. And this is Paul's account for unbelief, right? So in chapter four, verse two, Paul says that he has spoken of this glory so clearly Right? He has preached the gospel clearly. He set it before the people. He has declared it openly and unambiguously. He's saying, I have made this gospel so clear. Right? So if people are not clinging to it, it's not because I haven't made it clear. That's not why people don't appreciate this objectively better gospel. It's not because he hasn't communicated clearly enough. Rather, the gospel is veiled by the God of this world. And this is the second time, guys, this is the second time in this letter that Paul has made direct mention of the person and work of Satan, which means that Satan features a much more prominent in the role of Paul's conception of the Christian life than many of us would naturally imagine. Brothers and sisters, there really is a God of this world operating with a kind of contingent authority. It's, not, it's never trumping the sovereign will of God, but it is remarkably real nonetheless. 
Paul actually describes this satanic realm of authority as the, uh, to the Colossians as the domain of darkness. And make no mistake, every living and breathing human being finds him or herself in this realm of darkness by default. In Adam, we are blinded from the glory of Christ. Satan, the liar and deceiver, blinds the hearts and minds of unbelievers from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ that is objectively better. And so this should radically affect the way that we evangelize, right? We hold forth the gospel and we are desperately in prayer that the Holy Spirit would remove that satanic veil, which brings us to our third point. The glory of Christ is seen when the Holy Spirit unveils the heart. Look at that second half of verse 14 of chapter three. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul is saying that the removal of this satanic veil is an act of spiritual liberation. The Holy Spirit is liberating the person. And I want you to notice the mechanics of what is happening in this whole veil removal situation. The veil is removed when one turns to Christ by faith, right? Only through Christ is it taken away. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And so the emphasis in these phrases is on our action, Right? This is why we call unbelievers to consider Jesus and why we beckon them to come to Christ and look to Christ by faith because no Christian ever became a Christian without looking to Christ by faith. However, when this happens, when this is happening, we're told that the Spirit is actually present granting freedom of that veil. And this means that for the Spirit to remove the veil is for one to turn to the Lord by faith. It is through Christ that this new covenantal blessing of the Holy Spirit comes to us. He removes the veil from the unbelieving heart in order for it to be exposed by the glory of Christ. And that exposure is irresistible. When the veil that once obscured the glory of Christ from the vision of a sinner is removed and he beholds the image of Christ, he cannot help but worship in glad-hearted faith. We'll come back to this idea in a moment, but real quick, I just want to, in passing, mention where this glory is actually emanating from. Where is it emanating from? Whenever one reads Moses, the veil is the veil lies over their hearts. Whenever one reads the old covenant, the veil is there. That means that the glory of Jesus is objectively shining from the Old Testament. If we can't see it, it's not because it's not there. It's because there's a veil keeping us from seeing it. So our priority here at Emmaus is to preach Christ. And that agenda doesn't change when we're preaching from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament or 
the Psalms or from the Proverbs or from Nehemiah or from the prophets, which is coming up next. We're going to preach Christ everywhere because Christ is objectively shining forth from the Old Testament as well. All right, so fourth and final characteristic of the glory of Christ seen in this text. Paul tells us that the glory of Christ is divinely creative. Look at chapter three, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, so now that the spirit has removed this veil, it's no longer over our face, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Now look down at chapter four, verse four with me. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And now chapter four, verse six, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit gives us a clear vision of when he removes the veil. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we see the glory of Christ, when we see the the good news of Christ's glorious person and work, who he is and what he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, when we see the glory of Christ, we see the glory of the, the very glory of the triune God. Now, let me call your attention to three implications in light of this. First, since it is the glory of God we see in the face of Jesus Christ, it is effective to save and to create new life. Verse six may have reminded many of you of God's work in Genesis one, right? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. It reminds us of when the beginning of creation, when God said, let there be light, right? So we think of of his creative speech that brought everything that exists apart from him out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. However, the language Paul uses also sounds very similar to the language found in Isaiah when the prophet speaks of God's glorious and luminous presence and the culmination of history, right? When he will make all things new and recreate the heavens and the earth in glorified fashion. So this has prompted a question for many a scholar, which is it? Is Paul thinking about the glory of God in creation or the glory of God in the future recreation of the cosmos? And the answer, of course, is both, right? Because it is the same glorious God displaying the same glorious creativity at the beginning of history and at the end of history. The same ex nihilo, out of nothing, creative power that was at work at the creation of the cosmos and will be at work at the glorification of the cosmos is at work in the creation of every Christian. God spoke light into the dark void of nothing and out came a universe teeming with life. God will speak light into the dark void of this fallen creation at the end of human history and out will come a new heavens and a new earth teeming with new life. And still today, God speaks light the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He speaks light 
into the dark void of the sinful heart and out comes a new heart teeming with new life. So the display of the glory in Christ's face is effective to save because it is none other than the glory of God who creates life out of nothing. That's what he's in the business of doing. So when we see that God's glory, creation happens. New life happens. And so here's how it works. We were made to crave glory and beauty. We were created as human beings to want to worship objects of glory and beauty when we find them. And that hardwired impulse, that hardwired mechanism is supposed to terminate in God. That's what it's created for. Like a fish is made to be in water, human beings were made to glorify and enjoy God, right? It's a thirst that was created to be parched by enjoyment and worship of the triune God. That's where the drive for beauty and glory comes from. And all lesser forms of beauty and glory, which derive their beauty from God as the source of beauty, are intended to be pointers back to God. So we're supposed to enjoy them. We're supposed to enjoy lesser created uh, works of glory and beauty. We're supposed to enjoy them as gifts of the giver who is the supreme gift. That's what they're for. And they can only be rightly appreciated in relation to God. However, when Adam plunged us into darkness, when Adam plunged us into sin, he plunged us into darkness. And so now... There is a satanic veil that covers the hearts of sinners from seeing the glory of God, and therefore, they cannot see objects of lesser loveliness appropriately. They can't see them rightly, right? They see them, they, they, since they can't see them in relation to God, they instead see them as God. So this is the essence of idolatry. The essence of idolatry is when this hardwired impulse, this hardwired drive for worship is trying to latch onto something that it wasn't created for. It's trying to latch onto objects of lesser loveliness instead of God. It was created to latch onto God, but it's latching onto something else and it's malfunctioning. Lesser objects of loveliness cannot sustain worship. They can't. That's not what they're made for. And so that is the, our situation by default. We're sitting there in the domain of darkness, stroking our idols while Christ stands before us as an objectively better object of worship, and we can't see him. We cannot see him. That is the situation. We're sitting there stroking our idols, thinking that we are, we are stroking the most lovely object available, while Christ is standing before us, and we can't see him until the Holy Spirit removes the veil, until he flips the lights on, and we see Christ standing there before us with all his irresistible beauty. And so we throw down our idols and cling to him by faith. We drink deeply of the living water of Christ and thereby quench the thirst that we were trying to quench with the salt water of our idolatry. So that is saving faith. That's how it happens. The glory of Christ is effective to save and to create new life because it is none other than the glory of God himself. Second implication. 
in removing the veil from the hearts of unbelievers, the Holy Spirit does something amazing. He actually positions us alongside Moses, so to speak, on Sinai, looking directly at God's glory and leaving us with a luminous effect like Moses. Look at verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. You see what he's saying? He's saying it was a sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that created new life within us such that we became Christians. And it is the continued sight, the continued sustained attention of the same sight that will transform us. Transformation in the Christian life, that is the process of becoming more and more like Christ, the process of becoming our true selves in Christ, happens by staring at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And like Moses, when we fill our eyes with the glory of God, we are molded and imprinted with that glory. We become like what we behold. We worship Christ and become more and more like him. Some of you may know what this looks like just from looking at great men and women of God. Right? Have you ever been around Christians who are just obsessed and awestruck with Jesus? Like the older they get, the more infatuated they become with him. Don't they just almost start to strike you as otherworldly? You're just so in love with Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you find yourself gravitating toward them because you feel like closer proximity to them. Somebody somehow helping you to appreciate and love Jesus more. Not in a weird way. It's not like they're mediators between you and Christ or anything. But it just seems like sustained years of proximity to Christ has caused for Christ's glory to rub off on them. You're like, whatever they got, I want more of it, right? I want to be around them so that I can get whatever they got. Well, that is this principle from 2 Corinthians 3.18, working itself out. We, when we behold and continue to behold, day after day, year after year, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we ourselves are transformed into Christ-likeness from one degree of glory to another. Third implication. Since all real true transformation happens from beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that means that the most effective Christian preaching is preaching that simply calls attention to the glory of Christ. Paul stresses this over and over again in this letter. In chapter 2, verse 17, and in chapter 4, verse 2, and now here in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He wants to be invisible and just point attention to Christ, to the glory of Christ. Paul's opponents came to Corinth with all sorts of flash and gimmicks and impressive resumes, but Paul knows that none of those things can possibly occasion the kind of transformation he is after and the Corinthians. Nothing in the universe can do for the Corinthians what the undiluted glory of Christ can do. 
So all he does is bring attention to the glory of Christ. He simply preaches Christ, unfiltered, undiluted, undiminished, and so do we. So I only have one pastoral charge for you this morning, and it is simply to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ when we see his glory all throughout this book. So behold the beauty of Jesus who is, the longed, who is longed for on every single page of the Old Testament. Behold the beauty of Jesus, the second Adam, who doesn't passively watch as the serpent deceives his bride, but he intervenes and he bruises his heel by stomping on that snake's bony, tiny little skull. Behold the beauty of Jesus, the perfect mediator, whose mediation is better than Moses's because it does not merely occasion God's temporary appeasement of his wrath for his people, but rather satisfies that wrath totally and entirely and writes God's law on that people's hearts. Behold the beauty of Jesus, the true Passover lamb, whose blood propitiates and diverts and turns away the condemning wrath of a holy God. Behold the beauty of Jesus, the true tabernacle, the temple, the true presence of God, where the people of God might relate to him freely with no veil and no threat of judgment. Behold the beauty of Jesus, the true wisdom of God, where fools come to be instructed in the way that they should go. Behold the beauty of Jesus, who is one with the Father and the Spirit in essence and glory. Behold the beauty of Jesus, the Word who was with God and was God and yet accommodated his infinite divine person for finite creatures by becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Behold the beauty of Jesus, the eternal Son of God who emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and added a human nature to his divine nature such that he, the second person in his human nature, lay bound by time and space, even while he, same person, and his divine nature sustained the cosmos that he created. The Son of God lying in a manger and sustaining the existence of that manger, the true God-man. Behold the beauty of Jesus who condescends from heaven and doesn't stop at the upper crust of humanity to save only the strong and the rich and the influential, but rather he goes all the way down to the bottom of the barrel. This slop-bucket slop, slop savior whose first cradle was a feeding trough and who is therefore limited by nothing to save the lowest of the lowest of the low. Behold the beauty of Jesus who is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way as we are and yet is perfect in his ministry because he was yet without sin. We're not done yet. Behold the beauty of Jesus, this beautiful God-man who wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Behold the beauty of Jesus who recapitulates and redoes humanity and does it right, who is obedient in every turn so that if you are united to him by faith, he replaces your every transgression with an act of his active obedience. Behold the beauty of Jesus who passively receives all the curse of Adam's sin, including the wages thereof, which is death. 
Behold the beauty of Jesus who takes your record of debt and st that stands against you with its legal demands and nails it to the cross. Behold the beauty of Jesus who takes your sin nature upon himself, your old self upon himself, and he nails it to the cross and then he buries it in the grave. Behold the beauty of Jesus who brings you out of the grave with him in his resurrection to walk in newness of life. Behold the beauty of Jesus whose resurrection solidifies and announces that your sins have been paid in full. Behold the beauty of Jesus who rules the cosmos at the right hand of the Father where he distributes gifts to his church through the indwelling of presence of his Holy Spirit. Behold the beauty of Jesus who will, who will, who will make all things new, who will wipe every tear from every eye, who will make all sad things come untrue and will make death work in reverse and who is taking, he really is taking your every single affliction and rendering it light by comparison to the weight of glory that he is preparing with it. Behold the beauty of Jesus, which is the beauty of the triune God, which is able to save because it is not merely the beauty of a man, but is rather the timeless beauty of the incomprehensible, unchanging, self-existent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-holy, all-just, all-gracious, all-gracious, all-loving, undiminished glory of the Trinity. This glory is able to save. And when we look at the crucified and risen Savior in this precious book, we are looking at the glory of that God. And so this is the glory that we consider now in this communion meal. <coughs> this bread and this cup are emblems of this beautiful God-man's body and blood whose life and death manifest the, this glory of this beautiful God to us. There are galaxies in this meager meal, brothers and sisters. So if you're a Christian, we invite you to take this meal. You're gonna come down after I pray you're gonna come down to my left, take from the bread, dip it in the cup, and return to your seat to my right. If you're not a Christian, if you have not embraced the glory of God manifested in this good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, please do not take this meal. Don't take this meal. Instead, watch us take it as we testify to one another and to you that Christ is indeed supremely glorious. And so our invitation to you is to take hold of the supreme glory of Christ by faith. Why on earth would you not want to? Don't you want to get in on all of that? So let's pray. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Triune God, we believe, help our unbelief. Holy Spirit, take the words that I just spoke and preached with them a better sermon than the one that I prepared and delivered. Connect the dots, Lord, between 
where your people sit with the needs that they have and the simple meditation on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Only you can do that work. Only you can connect those dots. And so we beg for you to do it now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I love you, Amaze. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.